Yes, really? What'd you do? Can you, can you say it in church? Annoy his brother. Well, that's every day. <laughs> that's what big brothers do, all right? Have you ever, ever gotten in trouble where, like, you got time out or got spanked? Awesome. Good job, Dad. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Bible tells us. Yeah. So here's what the Bible tells us in, in Romans 3.23. All of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us are bad, right? We do bad stuff. Every single one of us, right? Nobody's any better than anybody else. We all do bad stuff. And then Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. So because we do bad stuff, we deserve to die. That's what we deserve. That's God's plan. That's his policy. His legalism is that if you sin and break his commandments, you deserve to die. So Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, you know what? I don't want anybody to have to die. So I'm going to die on the cross for them. And I'm going to take all of their sins upon me. And because he never sinned, he lived a perfect life. God considered that a, a worthy sacrifice. So Jesus, who did nothing wrong, he never got in trouble, never got spanked, never got time out, went to the cross and died for us so that we can have eternal life. Eternal life? That's when you get to live forever and ever and ever with God in heaven, and you'll never leave his side again. You'll never leave his presence. So it's pretty good stuff, right? And that's why, you know, for some people, Thanksgiving, that's what it's all about. Because what God did for me, I'm all in. I'm thankful. I'll never doubt God again. I'll always be thankful. For other people, we're like, no big deal. I never met Jesus. I never saw him, you know. I don't know what suffering he did. It's not that big a deal. But Thanksgiving's really about pumpkin pie and whipped cream. Or it's about, you know, watching the Detroit Lions play on TV. I don't know who came up with that one. Detroit Lions? Come on. But uh, that's what really Thanksgiving is. It's all about thanking Jesus for what he did for us. And so I would encourage you that if you, if you haven't made things right with God, if you haven't invited Jesus into your life to make a difference in your life, if you haven't believed in him and accepted what he did on the cross for you, I encourage you to think about it and do it. So you can either talk to your parents, you can talk to me, come and talk, but we want to help you to have that peace that is eternal, knowing that no matter what happens in your life, God loves you, and he's always made provision for you. Make sense? All right, let's pray, okay? Father, thank you for loving us. I pray that you'll watch over each of these wonderful kids, and I pray, Lord, that they'll never leave you nor forsake you, and I pray that you'll never leave nor forsake them. I pray that your spirit will continue to work in their hearts to remind them, Lord, of what you've done for them, to remind them of the sin in their own lives, but to give them peace, knowing that Jesus came to wash all of that away. Help them, help them Lord, to continue to walk in your ways and to live a life that honors you, glorifies you, and always keeps them humble. Thanks for loving us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Have fun. <laughs> They're like it, looking at me like, where's the candy, dude? It's out there on the table. Why is my sleeve unbuttoned? Anyway, ADD again. All right, you all can stay there. <laughs> all right, just stay right there, okay? We'll be done in a couple of hours. Ha, 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 ha.
They start young, don't they? (laughs) Crack me up. All right, so today, what? No, not today. Today's Family Sunday. And on Family Sunday, we all stay here and we party with the preacher man. There it is. Today is the last day. Today is the last day. So today our topic is going to be one that I have never ever addressed before in 27 years of ministry. To my own mistake, to my own, uh, to my own peril in some ways. You know that the first week we started this series, we talked about widows. The second week, we talked about marriage. Last week, we talked about parenting, children. And this week, we're going to be talking about blended families. Blended families. Just out of curiosity, if you have a blended family or if you were raised in a blended family, raise your hand. Pretty cool. All right. So I want to give you, start with, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of statistics. And I'm going to give you some resources that will help you as well. Because, you know, Paige and I, we are a blend of family. I was raised in a blend of family. She wasn't, but we are a blend of family now. We're the Brady Bunch. And, uh, and there's a lot of dynamics that are, we're clueless about. So we've had to study this. We've had to, to be patient. We've had to pray about this. And God is, is teaching us. And I just know that we're not there yet, but we still are on fire for God. And he's doing amazing stuff in us. But here's some statistics for you. Some of these, the dates of this might be a little bit old, but it's hard to find current dates because this is something that really hasn't been studied very widely yet. Ron Deal is the president of a group called SmartStepFamilies.com. So you'll want to write that one down. This is a very, very good resource, SmartStepFamilies.com. He writes that overall divorce rate in America was 45 to 50% about 10 years ago, 45 to 50%. The remarriage divorce rate, when at least one partner has been married before, is uh, reported to be 60%. Uh, In a conversation with Dr. Hetherington, which is a principal researcher for Virginia Longitudinal Study of Divorce and Remarriage, and has written several books, says this, that the overall divorce rate for step couples is between 65 and 70%. So basically, all marriages are going to, 45 to 50% will end in divorce. And of those who choose to remarry, and remarriages or a blended family is at least one partner uh, has been married or in a relationship before and has at least one child. 65 to 50 or 65 to 70 percent of those are going to also result in divorce. Uh, goes on to say, there's a lot of cool stuff here. According to George Barna Group, 35 percent of born again Christians have experienced divorce. Most of these people remarry. 75 percent of them have experienced divorce a second time. So of Christians who have been divorced, 75% of them divorced a 
I'm sorry, 75% of them remarried, 23% of them got divorced a second time. 23%. 46% of all weddings in the United States today are remarriages for at least one of the partners. Most of these include children from previous relationships, and approximately 30% of all weddings in the United States gave birth to a step family. Which means that now we know that without intervention, 60 to 70% of these step families will result in a divorce again. If we do nothing about it. By the year 2010, it was predicted that there will be more step families in America than any other type of family. At that time, research dictated, this is done by the Step Family Foundation of America, their research was that we're adding 1,300 new step families every single day in this country. 1,300 step families. The average marriage today lasts only seven years. And another statistic, 66% of those who live together or remarried with children break up. So 66% of them break up. In other words, the statistics are against us that if we're in a second marriage or if we're in a step family situation, the odds are deeply against us that we will not make it. Let me give you some more stats. Uh, Wellenstein, which is another psychologist, says only 45% of children who have been involved in a divorce situation are really doing well. 45% of them. 55% are suffering. But he goes on to say this. 41% of those are doing poorly. Uh, They're worried. They are underachieving. And they practice self-destructive behaviors because of the pain and the grief that they have gone through as a result of their divorce, their family's divorce. Hetherington, a psychologist who wrote the article above, worked with a Virginia Longitudinal Study, um, says that most children do well after two years removed from the divorce and say that young women are more likely to do well after divorce than young men will. 70% of those... 70% of all kids who have been through a divorce believe that divorce is a right thing to do and a good option for those who are struggling. Of those children who have never been through a divorce, 40% of those believe that divorce is a good option. So in other words, the more we go through divorce, the more the kids experience divorce, the more the family values decline and the more the opinion of divorce or or marriage uh, declines. Which, in other words, we got a mess on our hands, right? Now, you all know that uh, I'm not sitting up here looking down my nose at all of you who have been through divorce and and all of you who have hurt people because of your divorces, because I are one, right? But we don't hear a whole lot of positive stuff about blended families. We don't hear a lot of encouraging stuff about blended families. And so in many ways... We feel shame and guilt. I think I told you, maybe I didn't. uh, After I got divorced, I went to three different counselors to kind of help me process and to regain some kind of health in my head. And all three of them spent the entire first half of the time, at least half of the time, 
uh, beating me up about, don't you realize that divorce, that the Bible says divorce is wrong? Don't you realize that divorce, God hates divorce? And I'm like, you know, I've been a preacher of 25. I've never heard this before. You know, it's like, really? Now you want to beat me up over this? I mean, I know what the Bible says. I didn't do this lightly. I didn't get into this just because it sounded like a good idea at the time. Uh, but that's what they do. They beat you up, beat you up, beat you up. Didn't you know? Shouldn't you have known? Shame on you. Shame on you. And, and, and then disciplining us by saying you can no longer teach. You can no longer preach. You can no longer serve. You can no longer do anything but sit in the pews. That's all you can do. And that's how we're treated. That's how we feel. We feel shame and guilt all of the time. Not just because of the mistakes we've made, but because people want to continue to push the, push the nerves that are exposed. And that is extremely uh, discomforting. So, there's some resources I want to tell you about, and you can write these down or I'll give them to you later. Smartstepfamilies.com. Another one is marriagetoday.com. And a third one is Step Family Foundation of America. So, let's look at these scriptures for just a minute. Uh, I came across this message by Dr. Jimmy Evans, who uh, is the founder and the director of marriagetoday.com. He's also a pastor on staff at uh, the church in Texas that I I like so much um, with Robert Morris. Is it Gateway? No, Harvest. What is it? Gateway Church. I can never remember the name. But he uh, is a marriage and family counselor. Uh, He is a pastor that deals with this subject matter. And he took these two verses, which are are principles that we use in just about all of our marriages, our weddings today. And he just simplified it by giving it classifications. He came up with, with four foundational laws and principles that should be established in any couple that gets married. Now, I could have done this two weeks ago when I talked about marriage, but I had a different direction we were wanting to go then. Uh, But I'm going to lay this down here because this applies to every marriage, but it also is going to apply to uh, blended families and could possibly help save some of them if we practice these principles. So when we look at these four foundational laws, the first one we're going to look at is what we call the law of priority. The law of priority. This is based on the first phrase in verse 24 that says, For this reason or for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother. The law of priority basically says this, Marriage must take precedence over every other aspect of a person's life, family, and career. In other words, when you get married, your spouse should always be your top priority, not children, not your career, not money, not the house, not your makeup or your work ethic or your workouts, your workout ethic, you know, uh, none of that. Your marriage must be your total number one priority because remember what I said about order. God created everything with order. The head, the father is the head of the household. Uh, the wife is the neck. Uh, she's the one that holds up the head. But uh, and then the trickles down that way. That's, there just has to be order. And even in a blended family, there has to be order. 
And the order is that the marriage comes first because that is the focal point of the entire family. And you know, being in a family, and I think we've all been in a family at some point, right? When you're in a family, if the marriage is in shambles, it trickles down to every aspect of your life. Your life will be in shambles if the marriage is in shambles. If your mom and dad hate each other, won't spend time together, and are always criticizing each other, it will trickle down into the children. They will also be disrespectful of their parents because that is what they see modeled among their parents. Not good. I'm telling you, I substitute teach at the school a lot, and I wonder why the kids are so messed up there. Not all of them. Some of them are premium perfecto. But the reason so many of those kids are messed up, go sit in the teacher's lounge one day for lunch. And you will see the way teachers talk about other teachers and the way they talk about kids in their schools and in their classrooms. And you will know this is why the kids act disrespectful. Because the teachers are disrespectful. The administration is disrespectful. It's just a trickle down. So in other words, your first priority in marriage is your spouse. In a blended family, this becomes very problematic because either one or both partners have come with children of their own and they have gone through a time frame where they have been single parents. And when you're single parents, your children are your only responsibility. And so you put all of your attention, all of your focus on those children. And if you're single for five years, 10 years, or 15 years, then you are becoming entrenched in that particular way of life. When you get married, and this is the fault of a lot of pastors, we don't explain this when we do premarital counseling, and a lot of, a lot of couples don't even get premarital counseling. So they're clueless to all of this, but we do not do an effective job of teaching When you come together to be married, we should explain to you, you have to make your spouse your top priority, not your ex-spouse, not your children, your spouses, your new spouse is your priority because you're setting a model uh, of what good, healthy marriage should be, and that will trickle down into your children, but they have to see it in you or they're not going to get it. Now, in this priority, there is also a natural jealousy that is, that is developed. Well, not developed. It's just innate in us. Your marriage must be your priority. If your spouse doesn't make it a priority, you will start to feel jealousy. Your career is more important to you than I am. Jealousy. Your children are more important to you than I am. Jealousy. Your friends are more important to you than I am. Jealousy. God put that in us. If we, uh, another interesting thing is when you have children. If, uh, you know, you remember when your children are little babies or still in the hospital, you're very, or, or your first child will just say when you get to take them to church for the first time. How many of you mothers, first time mothers, want everybody in the church to hold your baby? Nobody. By the time you get to the third or fourth, you don't care if the mailman handles your child, you know. But on that first one, nobody touches my baby because I'm jealous of that baby. That is my baby, right? Hopefully you outgrow that. But if, you're eight, if your child's 18 and you're saying, that's my baby, don't touch my baby, problem, right? 
So, this jealousy thing is very real. And if you don't understand that jealousy thing, you're going to abuse your other person and you're going to disregard those warning signs of jealousy and you're going to cause resentment and bitterness. Not good. So there are four ways that you have to prioritize with your spouse. This again, this comes from Jimmy Evans. This is not, he just gives the words. I'm just kind of embellishing on this. His four uh, priorities are sacrifice. In other words, if your spouse doesn't see you making sacrifices for them, they will not believe that that they are a priority to you. Sacrifice has to occur for them to see that you really prioritize and value their lives. For example, let's say your husband plays golf every Saturday. Or like I said a couple weeks ago, they go hunting every weekend or fishing every weekend. When you get married, now you get a, you get a reprieve occasionally. You, because your wife loves you, she lets you go hunting. But, uh, but, but if your husband does it all the time and then you get married and they say, I'm sorry, I'm still going golfing every weekend. Then there hasn't been an adequate sacrifice that values you and shows you that you're a priority. There has to be sacrifice. The second one is time. If you spend more time with your other friends than you do with your own spouse, problem. The third one is energy. If you uh, spend all of your energy at work and you come home and you have nothing left for your spouse, that will communicate disinterest or a low priority. And the fourth one is your attitude. If you come home in a bad mood every day and you take it out on your spouse and the spouse is usually the one who gets it whenever you come home, maybe the dog first, but the spouse second, if your attitude is always condescending, confrontational, negative, then they will also believe that you do not value them or prioritize them. The second law of priority is this, the law of pursuit. And that's in the second phrase where it says, he shall cleave or be united to his wife. The law of pursuit. We pursue our spouse, not just until we're married, but even beyond our marriage. And the, the principle is this, that we, we know that it's not easy to maintain a healthy marriage or a happy marriage. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. And so we know that when we get into the marriage that we're still involved in ongoing pursuit of our spouse. We have to continually work on preserving the pursuit because the pursuit also creates value and priority and makes the other person feel like they are worthy or they're valued. So pursuit can take a lot of different forms. It can be frequent phone calls during the day, just checking, make sure you remember that I love you. I don't want you to forget that. Or you might occasionally, off the wall for spontaneous reasons, bring flowers to her at work. Or go to Taco Bell and bring her a couple tacos. You know, whatever it is that she likes or that he likes, you do that occasionally. Showing that you're still in pursuit of them and that you still value them. You must be deliberate about their pursuit and sometimes creative. And you also have to remember that emotions and desire are not eternally automatic. It takes effort. I'll get into more of that in a minute. But let me just give you an example. Uh, If you were to say, um, 
Uh, well, anyway, I'll skip it and come back to it later. I don't want to blow it now. I'm on a roll. Okay. Well, at least I'm following my format here. The third principle, the third law, is the law of possession. This is where it gets really important, if, it's, if it hasn't been there already. This it comes from the phrase, and they will become one flesh. I don't know if you know this, but in the Bible, when it says they were one in spirit or one accord or one in flesh, what it means is they were intimate together. So in Acts, when they said they were in the upper room and they were praying and they were all in one accord, it doesn't mean they were driving a Honda. It means that they were intimately in prayer with each other. Intimately in prayer. They were praying for the same things. They were praying in the same manner. They were praying in their own unique way, but in a way that the same goal would be achieved. They were intimate with each other. So when it comes to the law of possession, we understand that we get married, we die to our individual selves, and we cleave to the other person, and we become one flesh. Everything becomes intimately intertwined. We become one in everything we do. In other words, everything that we possess going into the marriage is now equally shared among both partners. So prenuptial agreements is not a biblical concept. If you go into a marriage and you're automatically holding things back for yourself that you refuse to give over to the spouse, you're setting yourself up for failure. You just can't do it. You have to be fully committed and fully involved into the other person. Your possessions must be intimately shared. And it implies pouring all of yourself into that other person with whom you're intimate. There are no exceptions to this. Every possession you own is equally shared. Now, the reason that's important is because in a blended family, the one possession that seems to be problematic at almost every level is that of children. Because one partner says, I've got, well, in my case, I've got three, you've got three, we come together, we have six. And so it is a, it's a, it's a worldly thought that I need to keep my three away from the spouse because these are my babies. And then she would say, now these are my babies and I'm going to keep them away from you. But again, that is where blended family goes wrong. Because all of your children should be shared to the other. Now, this is a very interesting principle that I, I thought I never thought about this before. Is that uh, that what happens is we'll say, we'll say Paige in this in this scenario, she will say, "I love my three kids in ways that you never will, and you are never going to love them equally to me, and so therefore it's my job to love them." as I know how to love them. But what we have to understand is, is that love is not an emotion very often. It's a decision. And so what you're saying is to the spouse, you're never going to commit yourself to loving my kids the way I do. You're never going to be adequate in loving my kids like I do. And you're never going to be fully intimate with my kids like I am. In other words, you're setting your spouse up for failure. You're already prophesying over them, you're going to be a loser to my children. And so therefore, I'm going to protect my kids against you because I don't trust you. And so the principle is this. If you don't trust your parent, your spouse with your children, 
you have no business getting married at all. No business getting married at all. So when we come together in marriage, we have the law of possession. Everything I have is yours. Everything you have is mine. We will share this together. We will nurture them together. We will guide them together. We will love them together. And where there's discrepancies, we'll prayerfully and, and, and humbly seek resolution in this, but we'll do it together, never in isolation of the other spouse. This is the one, number three here is the one that really, really impressed me and made sense to me. The fourth one is also huge in a different way. The fourth law comes in verse 25 where it says the man and his wife were both naked. Now think about this. God created them naked and expected them to stay that way. It was God's plan that they would never need clothing. In essence, it says there was no shame, which it says the very last word of verse 25. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no uneasiness. They were completely and totally naked in front of their spouse. In other words, they were completely vulnerable. They were completely sensitive. Uh, They were completely loving. And they were holding back nothing from the other one. Just the way God created. By the way, I don't think I ever told you this, but did you know in, in Kentucky, I learned this, that there's a difference between the word naked and the word naked? Did you know that? Naked means basically that you don't have clothes. Naked means you don't have clothes and you're up to no good. Yeah. I learned that when I was down there because I made the mistake of saying naked. And they're like, hmm? Anyway, you don't have to pay extra for that. (laughs) N-E-K-K-E-D. Yeah. So what we're talking about is the law of purity. Bless you. The law of purity... They were naked and felt no shame. No shame involves purity. Once Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they both put fig leaves over their private parts. Well, that is where your vulnerability is and your sensitivity. And if you feel like you have been violated or that you're not completely safe, you're going to protect yourself completely, fully, and thoroughly. You don't want anybody to see your nakedness. That's why it's so hard for some people to get up in front of a church and give a testimony of mistakes that you made and how God has redeemed you because you would have to metaphorically expose yourself to the congregation. That's extremely terrifying to people who still live in shame and guilt. In the marriage, this is certainly a practice that needs to be understood, is that, uh, that you uh, cover each other up where you are shameful and where you are guilty, and where you're afraid, and where you're untrusting. But as you get more and more intimately involved with each other, and you completely are honest with each other, and you completely trust each other, then you will have no problem running around the house naked, or naked, you know, if you're married. And so that is the goal, is that you can come to a place where you have no shame with your partner, that is, that's the goal. Because, you know, what happens is you get, in a, you get in a first marriage, and you're like 20-something. You're still in good shape. you got good physique. You're proud of the way you look. Many times you'll go out and cut the grass with no shirt on, right? But when you get to be 50 and you're married, 
you're like, I am, I'm going to put on a suit and go out and cut the grass. I don't want anybody to see this, you know. I don't want them to be repulsed. And because of the shame that I feel about the way I look, I cover myself up. And that's even at home, too. I don't want people to see me. And you might even be one of those that say, you know what, I don't want my spouse to see me like this. And that was because of the shame that still resides behind the surface or under the surface. Things that you have not yet been fully open with, trusting with, and and so you're holding back part of yourself. So the law of purity is very, very important. They had no shame because they lived a life of purity. And when purity was violated, shame, shame creeped into the picture. Now, here's, here's where this gets ugly. Where there is shame in any of the partners, that shame is going to become guilt, and that guilt will become anger, and the anger will become self-hate, and that will become depression. And then when you get to that point, you're going to start look for ways to self-medicate yourself to deal with the shame and the guilt that you're experiencing. This is when you know your marriage is getting into rough territory. Whereas instead of being open and honest with your spouse about what's going on with you, you're holding back and covering it up, and then you're treating it with an addiction. This is extremely unsafe, and it is truly detrimental for your relationship. What happens when you get into an addictive behavior is that you create even more shame or guilt. Now, when there's shame and guilt, and you couple it with rejection, which is the result of not being a priority, step one. When you're being rejected and not being treated as a, as a top priority, that is going to fuel the shame and guilt. When you feel disconnected, and you don't feel like you're being pursued by your spouse, that's going to amplify this even more. And then when they start practicing controlling behaviors, which is a lack of sharing their possessions, a controlling behavior is, I'm going to do this. This is none of your business. I'm going to do this one activity that makes me feel good about myself. And then you become controlling of that and controlling of those around you. That amplifies things. Then you're going to have emotional and physical barriers that are built up between the couple Intimacy will take a dive. It will be thrown out the window. Your self-esteem will evaporate. Your happiness and your joy will dissipate. And then hard-heartedness is going to creep in, going to take root, and then you're going to start playing the blame game. Now, I, I, I don't know why this popped in my head a couple weeks ago, and uh, God was just talking to me about this. In Genesis chapter 16, a very interesting situation with a blended family. Abraham. Abraham was waiting for a son, and it wasn't happening. So his lovely wife, Sarah, said, dude, I got an idea. How about if you take my maidservant, Hagar, and you have a moment of intimacy with her, and then produce a child, and then you will have an heir to the throne? Not the real throne, because he wasn't a king. That's beside the point. So he did that. He's like, all right, don't twist my arm, you know? And so he did it. He should have seen up, if he had wisdom, he would know there was a catch, that there, this was a trick. 
No wife is going to say, yes, why don't you enjoy my friend? You know, nobody's going to ever do that. It was a trick. So he did that. And when the, the woman Hagar started to get pregnant, the bitterness and anger started developing in Sarah. When that baby was born, she was just beside herself. And this is what she said. And I forget which verse. I think verse 4 of chapter 16, Genesis. She began to despise her mistress. And then she said these words, you are responsible for the wrong that I'm suffering. She put all of the blame on Hagar. I did nothing wrong. This is you, my maidservant. You messed up. And that's what we do. When things are going rough in the marriage, we start blaming the other person because, of course, we would never do anything wrong. And it's all their fault. A couple of verses for you. In Ephesians 4.26, it says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. <coughs> in essence... Do not, you're going to experience anger, that's natural, but do not let anger get the best of you. You have to be controlling of your own emotions. You are responsible for the anger inside of you. If you let it get out, if you let it manifest itself in your arguments or in your fighting or in the way you cook and put arsenic in the food, you know, whatever it is, don't let the anger get the best of you. You have to always maintain loving and you, or a loving attitude, and you must always maintain humility and work it out. In Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Your heart is the top commodity that you possess in this world. If you let outside sources corrupt your heart, you're going to hate it. You're going to hate your heart. You're going to hate what you've become. You have to protect it against all outside influences. In the relationship, you have to guard your heart. When you start feeling things like bitterness and anger and resentfulness, you need to protect yourself. You need to rebuke it and get it out of your mindset, out of your head, out of your heart. Protect your heart. You have to keep it real. You have to keep it honest. And I'm telling you, the devil is good what he does. And when your wife does something... She comes home from work and she's in a bad mood because she just got audited by the state. That's not a good situation, is it? <laughs> and so she comes home and you're like, honey, here I am. Let's be intimate. And she's like, go away. <laughs> All right. What happens is the devil's going to sit on your shoulder and he says, see, I told you she doesn't like you. I told you that you're getting on her nerves. I told you that she isn't going to act loving towards you always. And so this is a sign that you better start making plans. You know, that's what the devil does. I've been there before and I know you have too, right? The devil, in any relationship, the devil will sit on your shoulder and start dictating to you how you should feel, how you should think, and how you should respond. He is very good about doing that, but we're too good about listening to him. We have to rebuke those words knowing that they're not godly. We have to rebuke it because we know it's going to be detrimental to our relationship, and we rebuke it because we have the upper hand and the devil doesn't. We have to protect our hearts. In closing, just a couple things. Did you know, this is my little did you know section. Did you know that Jesus was raised in a blended family? Did you all realize that? 
His father who raised him was not his biological father. Jesus was a stepchild. Uh, Did you know that the church is a collection of very complex step families? We are one big step family. We are siblings who are not biological, but yet we act as siblings. We have leaders who act like fathers and mothers to us. We are a collective step family. So if we ever had this mindset that God doesn't like step families, then we're completely ridiculous. <laughs> I didn't know what else word to say. In Romans 11, 11 through 24, I'm not going to read this whole section because it's kind of lengthy. It talks about the fact that we who are Gentiles, non-Jewish, that we have been engrafted into the vine, which is Christ himself. So what, what happened is God pruned those branches of the Jewish vine, the grapevine, uh, that was not producing fruit, that had no faith, that was not functioning. He cut them off and burned them. And then he took us, these little saplings, uh, these Gentile saplings, and he engrafted us into the vine to where we became stepchildren to the family of God. That's what we're supposed to do for each of the children when we get into a remarriage. We have to engraft them into our lives and treat them just like we lived with the rest of the siblings. Did you know that God does his best work in brokenness? Another one that came to me about a week or 10 days ago, God, God is really strange in the fact that he'll just wake me up in the middle of the night and give me one Bible verse and not explain it, and then I'll forget about it, you know, or I'll get to church in the morning and I'll think, okay, now why did you tell me this? You know, why would I wake up in the middle of the night with a Bible verse? And this one particular night, I woke up with John eleven four, where Jesus said to the disciples, because he was just notified that Lazarus, his beloved friend, was, was sick and at the point of dying. And he said these words, this sickness will not end in, he- in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's son may be glorified through it. So I got and I started praying about that and journaling it and thinking about this, contemplating it. And God spoke to me and said, Maybe I allowed your family to be broken. He could have prevented it if he wanted, I guess, but he allowed me to self-destruct and he allowed me to damage the family. Maybe I did that so that my glory shall be revealed through your family's brokenness. Maybe through your step family, I will let my light shine through for all of those families, 1,600 a day that are being added to the numbers. And through, the, through you, I will offer hope to the rest of the world who has no hope. I said, well, sounds like a good plan. I wish you would have chosen somebody else, you know, but no, it's my fault that I self-destructed and damaged my family. It's all my doing. But, but what the devil intended for bad, God can use for good, is what he told Job, or what Job told him, one of the way. Anyway, and that's the plan. Yes, we're broken, but we're not going to stay perpetually broken. We're not going to go and lick our wounds and just go and retreat to a cave and then wait to die. We're going to continue to function in his grace, and we're going to go into the world, and we're going to make a difference. We're going to show ourselves. We're going to dismiss the shame that has been hovering over our heads, and we're going to let that light shine through us, and it's going to bring hope to broken families. 
Maybe in your brokenness, God allowed it to happen so that his glory could be revealed through you. Maybe as a church, maybe the brokenness of our church or, or the rejection the church has offered to one another or, or the pain that you felt, maybe that was done or allowed so that his glory could be revealed in our redemption as his children. Only time will tell, right? I don't know. I'm a little optimistic. I believe God knows what he's doing and he has a plan and he's going to let his light shine through us and the rest of the world's going to look at us like a dog that doesn't understand and it's going to say, wow, what just happened here? And we'll be able to say, well, that's what Jesus does. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we love you and we, we, we need you in our lives. We can't survive without you. We need you to talk to us. We need you to train us. We need you to correct us, rebuke us, to teach us. We need you to redeem us. We need you to speak words of hope and truth into our lives and, and teach us how to avoid the lies of the devil. And we need you, Father, to give us hope in the midst of our brokenness that you can use this in some way to honor yourself. We completely submit our lives to you, and we pray that you will let your, your joy come through us. And I pray, Lord, for a happy ending for every person in this building. You are truly amazing, and we love you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our closing. And if you would like somebody to pray with you, I'm...